Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with the effervescent, calming and cooling Teos Abadia. Hey Teos. Calming and cooling? I don't know. I uh, I watched Obi Wan and then I went to the internet and uh, I wouldn't do that. Oh, I could rant about that, Mister Mon- Mister Sean Merwin, because uh, yeah, folks, uh, yeah. Same thing. Same thing happened to me. I watched the first episode, and I didn't even go looking for people. I just sort of was like, "Hey, what's going on?" Oh, oh, the humanity. Yeah. Uh, I also watched the first episode of Stranger Things, me too, uh, which was highly entertaining, and I'm sure we yeah. will talk about it in more detail at some point without uh, spoilers. But oh, yeah. we uh, we have a lot to get to today, so I think we should just dive Let's right in. All right. So first of all. Uh, we're getting a lot of feedback and comments and questions from the internet these days. So we're going to take a bit of time to talk to a, talk to a couple of folks. Uh, the first one being Paul McMahon on Twitter said, 5e modules will gate lore behind ability checks. For example, Lost Minds of Fandelver. A PC can make a check that identifies the deities that were revered in Cragmaw Castle. This is purely lore. And doesn't give the PCs any advantage. So, from a game design perspective, why bother with the check? Mm, I want to hear your take, Sean. Well, I, my, take my take is, uh, as from a game design perspective, you shouldn't bother with the check. Uh, I understand why there is a temptation to do so because this is a dice rolling game we're playing. So, people have these interesting skills and abilities that you want them to have to use. And why would it, why not have them roll a history check to know history? But uh, as Paul says, you know, some of this is interesting lore. And if they fail their check, they don't learn that lore. So, my thought is the DM should deliver all relevant lore whenever possible. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. Like some DMs would say, but the character would not know that lore. That's okay. Because here we're talking to the player. We want the player to be invested in the lore more than we care about whether their character would know it or not. So if it makes something more interesting for the player, if it soaks the character in the setting that you're uh, trying to present to them there is no harm in giving them that lore Uh, now if you want you can have the character who is proficient in history make a check and even if they roll low give them the lore if they roll high give them inspiration give them some small benefit that uh, rewards them for being proficient or rolling high and that way you you know you're mm-hmm. you're still having the check and you're having a consequence for the check, but it's not the consequence of you don't know this cool information. Yeah, so um, I like that plenty. Like like there's mm-hmm. everything about that is great. Um, I do have a slightly different perspective in that I like checks as ways to engage players. Um, both the mechanical action of rolling those dice that gets them to look at their sheet and 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 use their you know, hand to toss a die onto the table. I like that kind of thing. I find that it keeps people awake. Um, And I find that the relationship where they know that periodically their characters might know things and that I will pick a character that I think might know a thing and ask them to make a check. Mm -hmm. I find that that keeps them engaged. Mm -hmm. It it works for me. It may not work for everybody. 
Um, and so because of that, I like adventures to have these sort of extra things you learn. But the things shouldn't be critical, right? They should be just flavor and lore and interesting things. And what I'll often do is if the check is low, but again, I've chosen somebody who should kind of know something, then I'm going to give them some of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So you can't make out the exactly what the Kragmaw Castle, uh, you know, statues represent, but you do understand that they're deities. Roll well, you know which deities. Roll really well, you know which ones, and there and maybe some hint about something, you know. But it's that kind of engagement. Um, I also like what what uh, Mike Shea says around secrets and clues, where he he kind of when he's designing things, he wants to have this sort of list of secrets and clues that'll come out in any session that he's running, mm-hmm. and he's totally okay with with not all of them or even none of them coming up, right? Mm-hmm. You just might not run into them. But they're there in case you want them, and the next time you come up with other things, they may learn. And the point of it being that there isn't some magical list of lore you must unlock, but rather that interesting things should come up. And I think that's a, a cool way to look at it, too. Right. And, there, I mean, we could go on a, a, for a long time about this because <laughs> it could be a know, show. we could what, – what does lore actually mean? Mm. Right? Does lore mean history? Does lore mean culture? Does lore mean this? Does lore mean that? Uh, you know, the, the one thing that – the best way to get lore across is to make it matter at the encounter level. Uh, so put in something where there's a puzzle and uh, you can figure out the puzzle without knowing the lore. But if you do know the lore and you make those checks, it becomes easier to do the puzzle. You get more information with which to do that. So, yeah, I think uh, all of that is is interesting and important and we should as designers do the best we can to incorporate lore not just as the background for the setting but as part of the forward moving momentum of the story of the game yeah yep all right all right what's next Uh, next is yeah matthew petard on twitter asks a series of questions uh so he says i was listening to your podcast recently on spelljammer at the very start, you were talking about the sameness of settings, be that Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk, and Eberron. And he says, I'm not sure I agree with that last one uh, about Eberron. Uh, you mentioned Dark Sun is obviously not amongst those. Does, that fact, does the fact that Dark Sun also restrict classes and races come into that? For example, no gnomes or paladins in Dark Sun. Uh, Dark Sun also has its own unique races, the Thrykreen, its own unique class, the Defiler. Uh, does this restriction of choice help or hinder a setting? So what I wanted to say, first of all, when I, I think it was, I think it was me who made those comments. And when I was talking about the sameness or the differences in settings, I wasn't talking about the details of the setting specifically, but the sameness or differences in the types of stories that a setting will support or spawn by through play. So for most settings in deity, we see, For example, uh, political areas are often also defined by races. So there's the Dwarven Kingdoms, there's the Elven Forests, there's the Orc Badlands. And so when uh, when you have conflicts between political regions, they are by necessity also conflicts along racial divides. So lots of settings do this, and it forces you to tell a particular kind of story if you have political conflicts. 
Another example would be safe areas like towns and cities. We often start in the town at the tavern. And the stories that go from that often um, are directed by the fact that you do start in a civilized area. So what I want a setting to do is do, do things that necessitate a different kind of story sometimes than the ones that, that are often told by the settings that we place our games in. Uh, and uh, I will talk more about this after I read the, the next question. Uh, so Matthew continues, moving on to Aurora, which you mentioned, I had a quick look at the video for the Kickstarter. However, I'd like to ask if Aurora restricts out, as in Dark Sun, any races or classes. In the same note, does it add any new races and classes? Lastly, you mentioned that it's very possible to run a type of adventure in Greyhawk, Forgotten Realms, and Eberron, but not so much in Dark Sun. As obviously Dark Sun and Aurora share some similarities, could you run Dark Sun Adventures in Aurora? So, hmm. yes. The answer to all of that is yes. The first yes is, uh, does Aurora have restrictions on races and classes? Aurora doesn't have races. After the great abjuration in the setting, there was no such thing as a racial trait. In fact, there were no creatures. The world was repopulated by dragons. But since the dragon goddess Jadol had absorbed all the energy of all the sentient creatures that were on the, the world, any birth uh, from these dragons could result in true dragons, which were very rare, could result in Dracokin, which were rare, but, but uh, less un still uncommon, but rare. And then just folks, which were the, the common people. So in Aurora, uh, mechanically, there are 90 traits you can choose from when you create a character rather than choosing a race. Because of that, you can have mathematically 3 37.655 trillion different character origins and not be the same as someone else. Now, if you do as we suggest and restrict those choices to certain categories, three combat traits, two exploration environmental traits, and two role-playing traits, it goes down to only 18.5 billion different unique characters that you can have. And that doesn't even bring in subclasses or, or uh, backgrounds or classes. That's just with the ancestry uh, system that we've set up. So yes, Aurora is very different. You can't fall back on those old tropes of, well, we're elves, so we do the elfy things. Or we're orcs, so we do the orky things. You have to decide what your character is right at the start. So that's one yeah. of the ways that we want to tell a different story. Uh, this, I'm going to let you talk in a minute, Teos, I promise. Uh, the, 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 the second thing is while we call Aurora post-apocalyptic, it's really an apocalyptic setting in the sense that society has not resettled after the dragon rage that sent everything all a tizzy. Dark Sun is post-apocalyptic in the sense that while it is a society in upheaval, it, there is a society. There are cities you go to. There are clans. There are races. There are these things that you can fall back on. Whereas in Aurora, we want to give you the option to have none of that, to have a, a setting where the characters themselves don't just create the stories through their adventures. 
and their choices, we want them to define the setting as well. We want them to decide if they want to make a settlement. And if they do, how is that going to be overseen? And who are they going to work with to create these settlements? Uh, so those are the kinds of stories that I don't see a lot of settings support through their makeup. And that's what I wanted to create with Aurora. Whew. All right. I'm going <laughs> to. No, gonna no, that's a, good. I'm going to take a drink. I, I will. So I appreciated hearing that. Um I, I agree with that sort of, you know, the, the point of what you were saying last time being that idea of what are the types of stories we make. And I think to me, that's that's just a critical design thing is that if your world is supposed to be a certain way, and particularly if it's supposed to be different, then the story should not be the same. Right. And so I'm reminded of um, there's a, a sci fi RPG and I don't want to badmouth it because I like it plenty. But one of the first adventures I saw was an adventure that was basically caravan duty, mm-hmm. right? Escort this caravan from town A to town B, town B in this super far future setting. And I'm like, really? That's the best we can do? I mean, you're supposed to blow my mind with sci-fi and I'm doing caravan duty. Yeah. You know, right. and, and on the other hand, uh, you know, my gold standard for doing this well is Eclipse Phase. Uh, so Eclipse Phase is a far future RPG where you can transcend your shape, right? You can you can download your persona, your being into another body. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, their their adventures are wild. And I've probably mentioned these before because they just they're such great concepts. But it's things like, you know, you wake up and you're restored from backup. But your actual original versions that you sent out to explore are coming back in a spaceship and they're all messed up. Mm-hmm. Right. They've been infected by something. So you're fighting you or you go to a convention, you play a game and you give every single player the same exact pregen because you are all copies of the same person. Right. And you look on the TV, the equivalent of a TV, and you just you're you committed a murder, obviously another you and go find out what happened. Right. And you're all right. playing the same character. Like, that is just mind bending, wacky, great sci fi stuff which is what we should have in that kind of genre, not caravan duty, right? And- right. Yeah, and, and that's what I mean, you know, by, yeah. by the sameness of story, not necessarily being the sameness of setting, because you can tell the caravan story in Greyhawk, and you can tell the caravan story in Forgotten Realms. Now, the caravan story in Eberron might be a little different, right? It may be a lightning rail rather than a, right, right, a horse and carriage or a horse and cart, uh, but it's still the, the caravan story. Uh, and then you can go to uh, Ravenloft and you could tell the caravan story and how you may be assaulted by different things, but it's still yeah. the caravan story. You're still going yeah. from one point of light to another point of light through wilderness. And so what I wanted to get rid of in Aurora are the points of light. You gotta, yeah. you have to first create your own point of light and keep that light shining. And, and you can still have the mm-hmm. same sorts of adventures. You can still go off and explore in a dungeon. You can still do all these things, but the stories that your characters uh, will be taking on and the setting in which they are going to take them on will change based on the character's choices rather than just what the setting says it is. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the hopes. And we do have a, (laughs) we have many more questions, but we will get to some of those next time because we have some news and some commentary. Uh, First bit of news New dates for certain D&D products due to shipping impacts. Uh, Journeys through the Radiant Citadel will now be coming July 19th. 
and the campaign case terrain is now set to be released August 16th. There is a creatures uh, case that will still be available on July 19th and the spell jammer uh, launch is still planned for August 16th as well. Yeah, it's really uh, interesting. I mean, these are these are tough, right? These are tough for for D D. Like, it's it's getting a little shaky in that you try to plan your releases based on all of your marketing strategy, and you're trying to create sales that one launches the other, and that kind of thing. And and when these sort of things happen, it messes with that. And so, you know, you would have had some DMs who would have bought the campaign, the two campaign campaign cases at the same time now you're breaking them up does that you know mess up your sales and mm-hmm. you know if journeys moves further back to people then open buy journeys but then not buy the next book because it's a little too soon it depends on your budget you know so it's just yeah. that's tough to see and 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 we we've been seeing it for all kinds of you know, it's not just a wizard's problem right it's happening to everybody so we'll, sure. we'll see how that keeps going on yeah my first One thought thinks, was <laughs> my first thought was all this <laughs> yeah my first thought was if if the books are going to be <coughs> excuse me <coughs> if the books are going to be late what about uh D and D beyond can we still get it right but do they do they push that date back so to, far yeah, yeah it seems so like far they, they push it push back, back right they do not and that was the funny thing about multiverses we know they could have put multiverse out there but they they wanted it to reflect the mm-hmm. they don't want to mess up book sales and which yeah. is great. I mean, I I like paper better than digital. I use digital for research, but I like paper for reading. Um, and so in, in a lot of ways, I, I I want the release to be simultaneous too. And I, I don't want to disin- disincentivize mm-hmm. paper. So because yeah. I'm a fan of it. True. Uh, a new unearthed Arcana article came out, and it's chock full of the stuff that Unearthed Arcana articles are full of, new content. <laughs> In this case, we have three new giant-themed subclasses, as well as several, several, as I scroll down, several new feats, 10 new feats. Whoa, 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 giants? I mean, Sean, didn't we have Storm King's <laughs> Thunder like a really long time ago? Like, what's coming? Is it Greyhawk against the giants? I mean, what are we getting? Why, why now? Who knows? Because... Not only is it giant uh, themed, it's also rune themed and wow. sort of elemental themed. So it's a good question. You know, will yeah, they go the back? Rune Knight after Storm King too. So it's just yeah. kind of like, it's really weird. I guess maybe, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm so curious because I can't think of like an old setting or something else that would obviously kind of support this or benefit from this particular, unless... I mean, WizKids has been re-releasing minis for all, all kinds of adventures, mm-hmm. old and new, you know, these these sets. And maybe they're trying to keep things evergreen, right? Like maybe they're hoping that by publishing this in some sort of, you know, new Volos type book that this will, you know, encourage people to run the older material. I don't know. It's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, it, it is interesting if because now they're they're putting out books without adventures tied to it specifically. Uh, so maybe it will just be a big book of new player content. And I mean, they could be getting this ready for 5.5. Maybe. So, huh. but we can, uh, we could speculate on that forever, but let's talk about what is actually there. Uh, first we get the barbarian path of the giant 
I'm going to let you take over because I've been doing a lot of talking. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, so you draw strength from the primal forces that are giants and elementals. And that is a piece of Fourier lore that I'll never fully uh, adopt in my brain, the, the equating the whole primordial side. But okay. Um, it's, um, and, and I, I like you, you note here that this ties into Greek mythology. Right. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the story of the gods versus what came before the gods. So in mm -hmm. this case, the Titans are, were the primordials, right? They were the essence of what our world is, the, the earth, yeah. the air, the stuff water, yeah. fire, and the, the sort of less chaotic uh, gods, the Olympians uh, overthrew them and took control. And, you know, it's the same sort of concept that I saw played out in fourth edition. We need, it's all we're we're ever moving backwards even more than we're moving forward it seems so we always want to know what happened before what happened before this kingdom was there what happened before the gods were there what happened before this what happened before that yeah so Th though you know, it forces this this conglomeration right of like elementals that come from the elemental planes which maybe it's the stuff of the cosmos but i don't know that it truly is versus the stuff of the planet which is what like, the greeks were talking about and then we have to choose sides. We have to say, well, the dragons are on the other side. So they're on the God side. And we have to explain why. And, right. and yet we have clearly dragons that are fire and ice and all this sort of stuff. And I don't know. At some point, I just feel like we're just forcing it. But yeah, that aside, yeah. the concept here being there is a touch of elemental in the giants because that, that is all on this primordial basis of this conflict that came out of the 4E lore, uh, some of which came from other editions too. Um, so what you get is you speak and write giant, you get the choice of druidcraft or thaumaturgy as a way to kind of uh, describe your giantness and maybe even elementalness. And the big thing is that when you rage, you're going to get a bunch of benefits. And at third level, that benefit is you can add your rage damage to a thrown weapon using strength. Uh, I agree with tribality here that that just should have been a thing that rage gave you anyway. It just feels like, um, when you rage, your, raging, your reach increases by five feet, and you become large if you're smaller than that, as long as there's space for you. And I think that if there's space for you, I see a little bit of argument there. Like, can I just push people aside or really like nothing? Like, I, I think it's empty squares, but though they don't say it in that kind of concept. Um, and, and that is interesting because in previous editions, it has been seen that getting large is problematic, particularly if you're a caster or have AOE, because your your area has increased your circumference, and so now you can affect more squares that are contiguous to you and so on. Mm -hmm. um, such that things like a half giant in Dark Sun could not be large. It just, mm -hmm. it broke things, right? Yeah. Uh, here they kind of do a number of things, like they'll say that your weapon doesn't increase in size, right? Because those are rules for monsters, not characters, technically, the whole weapon size thing, though we've seen exceptions. So it's really that it's just you take up more space, though it will affect AOE, uh, and your reach increases by five, which kind of when you break it down, and if you aren't throwing stuff a lot, which probably isn't going to be your concept, you're not getting that much. Mm -hmm. Sixth level, when you rage, you now can deal an extra D6, uh, damage that's elemental and in fact all of your damage becomes your choice of elemental acid cold fire thunder or lightning um the because you know we know those acid giants are out there mm -hmm. uh you can throw the weapon it has a, whatever your weapon is your melee weapon you can now throw it and it will instantly return to you with a range of 2060 
cool. Again, yeah. I don't know how much you're really super throwing. I mean, the main reason people throw things as barbarians is to not lose their rage when they can't get to something to beat it up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, you can change your damage type as a bonus action. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting concept. What do you think of these so far? Well, so far, I, I get the I get the idea of uh, you know throwing things as opposed to to just being melee. However, you know, ninety nine percent of the barbarians that I have played with, DM'd for, seen, you know, are all about taking damage as opposed to dealing damage. Mm -hmm. That's almost more important. And so, what I would have rather seen here is rather than getting that extra plus two or you know whatever the rage bonus uh, is for your damage at the time, say you can throw uh, weapons in combat and not have a disadvantage on the attack roll. Right, because that's a lot more important than the extra mm -hmm. pittance of damage that the rage does. Um, yeah, and well, yeah, having yeah. having the weapon returned to you was obviously hugely important too. Because as right. you're throwing your great sword around the battlefield, uh, you don't want to <laughs> lose it, so it has to come back to you <laughs> if this is going to be at all effective. <laughs> um, so six, let's see, a tenth level as a bonus action while raging, you can choose a medium or smaller creature within reach and move it to a space within 30 feet. Um, if it's unwilling, you get a save uh, with the typical bonus you'd expect to avoid it. And then if it's not on solid ground, it falls and lands prone. So one thing is you can obviously move your friends around. You can toss the dwarf and you know do other things like that. But if it's an enemy, why not? Every round as a bonus action when you're raging, you might as well chuck something up. And D&D doesn't really specify how we, how we measure things diagonally. Mm -hmm. So in theory, 30 feet up and 30 feet away from me is still 30 feet away. And mm -hmm. there's no reason why you shouldn't chuck something 30 feet up diagonally into the air as long as the ceiling allows for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that will then cause them to take damage from falling and they might land prone. And that ends up being a huge thing and also probably pain in the butt for your DM because you're yeah. going to do that every round while raging because why wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, it it becomes an interesting... Well, first of all, let's say it this way. I think every campaign I've ever uh, played over, you know, five sessions in, someone has tried to throw someone else sure. at, at some point. Usually yes. it's characters throwing allies. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's something that you don't want to make it too powerful because then it happens all the time. But you want it to be fun and, and thematic. And so, you know, kudos for trying to at least start to do this. Yeah. But so many questions come up, right? We're in a room with a 15-foot ceiling. I'm a barbarian. I throw the orc 15 feet to the air. It hits the ceiling. What happens? Then it hits the ground. What happens? Mm -hmm. uh, right? Uh, now what happens? It's the same damage as falling 30, so it's probably okay. Right. Right. It, right. Except that it's only 10 feet, not 15 feet. I guess. So, yeah. right. You know, it, it, exactly. Yeah. Well, here we go. Uh, <laughs> Now I want to pick up the, the kobold and throw it at the other kobold who's 30 feet away. Mm -hmm. uh, now he's 30 feet on well, the ground. So yeah. how much damage does the thrown kobold take? How much damage does the so kobold? So here's your answer to that. The answer is that it doesn't say throw. And I think that's why. It says move. So you're moving them to a spot. You're not somehow, in, which is, I mean, it makes zero sense, right? We know that they're being thrown. But right. rule-wise... They're being moved. So they are placed in that position. If they fall, they can take falling damage. So I think your answer is if you were throwing somebody 20 feet up, 
Uh, and that's where the ceiling is. They don't take damage because they've been moved there, not thrown. Okay. And then they would fall 10 feet, right? To, and, and, or 20 feet, and, and they would take the falling damage from the 20, but not, it would not double it. Right. Um, because it's being moved. But you're right. I mean, all of this causes a mess like this. And we saw this a lot in 4th edition because 4th edition had sort of damaging zones and it had a lot of kind of uh, heroic architecture where you had, you know, lava pits and things like that. And so moving creatures around was supremely powerful. And they, they kind of cut back on that big time in 5e. So this mm -hmm. is a little bit of going back and, and giving you a little more of that possibility because now you can do this a lot. The 5e really, initially, the player's handbook especially, but even later books have prohibited, have not allowed this kind of shenanigans where, I mean, I'm over lava, right? Mm -hmm. And almost everything in early 5e language says that it's got to be like a safe spot, basically, right? right? And here, it's not. I mean, I can just chuck you as long as you fail your saving throw to a point that is above the lava. So not only falling damage, but into the lava or into right. the fire pit or into the pit, right? I, I move you 30 feet up and that's above the pit. Well, now you get all the pit falling damage too. So, so this is, it's interesting. I'll be very curious if this stays in because 5e until now has not wanted these kinds of things coming up. Yep. Uh, abuse yeah. wise. It's also like uh, a barbarian's version of Misty Step for Friends. Yes. Right. It's like, oh, you want to be over there? Okay, there you go. I mean, I role-playing wise, though, it's beautiful. You just imagine like grabbing right. the dwarf by the head and just yeah. moving them to another spot. Like, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, thematically very f cool. Um, it really hits the fun spot for for people that that play. But uh, yeah, lots of rules questions come up. Yeah. And at 14 to get some more damage, it's now 2d6. I mean, th that's not much damage extra compared to other uh, barbarian paths. Um, you get a little more reach, and you can now be huge in size, which, again, if you can AoE off of that, uh, that could be significant if you exploit that. And it'll be interesting to see what people theorycraft around that if it really comes out, because being huge is it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I don't like huge. It clogs, in my experience, very few rooms support huge things. Right. Unless you designed for a huge monster specifically, and and you, you the DM is not the designer, the writer, whatever the DM is not coming up with huge spaces for characters, and so it just clogs the lane and and makes battle less fun, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But we'll see. Yeah, it, it makes it fun for one combat. It does not make it fun for the thirty-two combats that come after that. Yeah, and, and you know, maybe we talk about this at a different time, but just to mention it, because it's, we're talking about the Barbarian, and one of the big topics that's been going on in the internet is this change in uh, Monsters of the Multiverse, where they didn't want to write the magic weapon rule out every single time, um, but they wanted to come up with another way to explain for how, like, one devil can hurt another. And so they have changed a bunch of damage to be force damage or some other type like that. Mm -hmm. uh, to sort of explain why it bypasses resistance. But what that all of, all of that translates to is that now a bunch of monsters are dealing, used to deal piercing, slashing, bludgeoning, and now they deal force or fire or whatever, which your barbarian does not resist. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether the 5.5 barbarian is going to have a change to its wording to make yeah. up for that because this is a, a big impact to it yeah unless true. they didn't want the barbarian tanking like that but the whole idea was sort of this glass cannon unless rage right but we'll right. see yeah 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 i mean overall i i like it uh mm -hmm. 
I I think it makes sense if you're going to tie the Giants to the elemental planes and you make a path of the Giant, then you need to have some elemental stuff thrown in. So, yeah, yeah I think cool. it's cool. Uh, I... I have seen ranged characters do lots and lots of damage with feats like sharpshooter and f- certain fighting styles and certain battle master moves. Uh, so mm-hmm. the, the problem is reckless does not work for ranged attacks. It only works for melee attacks. So you're not going to get too many barbarians players trying this when they can't actually get advantage on their attacks to take it to to Mm -hmm. take advantage of the uh the feats like you know great weapon fighter and and uh yeah and sharpshooter so yeah Hmm. interesting there you go then we get the circle of the primeval druid so you tap into the time-worn memory of the earth to summon and bond with the spirit of a primeval primeval yes primeval behemoth a hulking creature that once ruled the ancient world alongside the giants. So it's your dinosaur-y sorts of thing. Yeah, they, they, they use big words to say, you get a dino pet. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, but but it's a little, I mean, it is more creative than that. And I think that's the fun of it. And, and, and that's that kind of thing where it's not, you know, dino druid, although it kind of that was obviously their motivation. And even in a video talking about this, they, they kind of said that. Um, but it's the concept here is you will get a pet that is supposed to be this sort of primeval uh, dino-like thing. Um, so you're proficient in history. You get to add D4 to checks involving history. That's kind of different, interesting. Um, you have a primeval companion, and we get you, you basically expend a use of wild shape. And instead of wild shaping, you get to summon your primeval companion within 30 feet. We get a stat block that's fairly simple. And unlike a lot of the recent stat blocks that we've seen, uh, which I really like, you don't get these sort of choices, right? So it almost like became a thing where you just expected like, oh, there's an air version, a water version, an earth version, something like that. This is just the thing. And um, and and it's pretty simple. It, you know, attacks, this, the damage and attacks aren't particularly flavorful. Um, they, they do increase over time with your proficiency bonus. And the kind of only really trick it has on top of its dark vision is that it can react to basically intercept an attack that uh, something next to it is taking and and it will take half the damage. Um, And so you're splitting up the damage that way. Um, And you determine what it looks like. It acts in initiative count. It does the whole takes dodge unless told otherwise or unless you're unconscious, then it does whatever it thinks it should. But it's basically waiting for you to spend a bonus action to direct, direct its actions, which ties up your bonus action, but but you get this guy in, in exchange for it. Yep. Uh, let's see. At sixth level, you get to cast a spell with a range other than self. Then it originates from either you or your companion, your choice. And your companion gets advantage on saving throws. And if the saving throw is for half damage or the companion succeeds, it takes no damage on a success and only half uh, on a fail with, quote, no additional effects on a failed save. So I assume what that means is if there's an effect that, you know, you take thunder damage and you are knocked prone, you even if you fail, you take half damage and are not knocked prone. Yeah. Uh, but that's very vague wording for, for something that could be what an additional effect is other than damage. So... Yeah, I mean, I guess it's whatever else you got in there, but I, I think that's probably fine. Um, 
I think what this looks at is that the, the whole subclass is predicated on this thing that if it's alive, it should be taking its actions and doing things. And so having it be, you know, stunned or mm -hmm. whatever it is, you know, restrained or whatever the thing is, it, it, you want it to be able to do things. And it's supposed to be this behemoth that thunders through everything. So, so it's fine. Yeah. Um, 10th level companion becomes large. You can give it either climbing or swimming. Uh, once per turn, when you've summoned it, when you hit a creature with an attack or spell, you can force it to make a wisdom saving throw against your spell DC. And on a failure, the target is frightened of you. So it's sort of like when you hit it, you're saying, Hey, look at my cool dino. And then they might be frightened. Um, yeah, that's to, to me, that's weird. And it's weird. And, and it's and, once per turn. Yeah. So as a druid though, you're, you're, you know, most likely you're going to be casting spells, although you could be making some attacks. So what I don't like is if you attack, I cast burning hands on it or something. Okay. I have to make a saving throw. Oh, I made or failed to save. Oh, now you also need to make another saving throw against that. Yeah. I don't like the two saving throws in a row. Thing. Yeah. Uh, I would love if they could find a way to, have it all wrapped up in one easy package. If you do damage, okay, make a save. But uh, no, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Only yeah, on no, melee attacks. I think the thing for me is once per turn is a bit. It, it's just, this is coming up too often, and, right. and so you're just constantly having to do this interaction. It can be an extra save if it's not all the time, or uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it just this constant checking thing uh, hurts play, in my opinion. So, but we'll see. Yep. Um, 14th level as part of the bonus action to command your companion. You can expend a spell slot. This is really interesting of any level for all of these things. One, the creature. Now your companion becomes huge and gets 10 temps per spell level sizable, uh, on a hit, your companion strike deals an extra D eight plus the level of that spell that you expended. And the walking speed increases by five feet times spell level. Um, and all of that lasts for an hour or until you expend a spell slot again, which is way longer than I thought this was going to be. When I started reading this, like, oh, okay, for a turn, it's going to have this. But no, like that's, so it's a, it's a boost. I mean, just even a single level one spell is giving it, you know, D8 plus one damage and making it move faster and giving it 10 temps. But you can, you can do this with a much higher slot if you want to boost that for an hour, which is interesting. Yeah, it, it's – and I, I, I had to read this several times to parse out certain things because mm -hmm. um, at first I thought it was like if you spend another spell slot, so if you cast a spell, it goes away. And I'm like, okay, that's different, but I can see how that would be, you know, a way to limit it. Uh, but no, it's if you expend a spell slot for this feature again. Yeah. But it only takes place when you do the summoning, right? As part of the bonus action, you no to command your companion. <laughs> so it's not just when you summon it. Um, and then I read the Mauler part as one d eight. Instead of reading it as one d eight plus the level, I read it as one d eight per level of the spell. <laughs> so I was like, "Huh, ninth level spell, you do ninety eight <laughs> extra damage every time." And and I was like, "Wait, but if you can cast a ninth level spell." To to have that happen for like a minute, okay, that's 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 a lot, but it's I could see that as you know eighteenth level characters doing that, 
And I was like, oh, for an hour. Wow, that's way too long. And then I read it again. I'm like, oh, it's only plus nine to damage with a ninth level spell. Never mind. So I was like all over the place trying to figure out how yeah. this was working. Yeah, it's uh, not terrible in terms of maintenance, but you, you're going to have to think through it and sort of prepare for it and, and, you know, do that alteration and then be ready to, you know, return it to normal after an hour. Um, yeah. What's interesting is, I mean, you can just do this all day, right? You could, you know, you have a lot of spell slots as a druid usually. Um, and, and so you could fuel this thing a fair bit, you know, for several hours worth without going too deep. Cause you're, you start, this is a thing you get at 14th level. You've got a, a good number of spell slots that you could spend mm-hmm. for this, you know, yeah, for an that's, hour of That's a, that's a lot of hours with a very, uh, buffed up companion depending on, yeah. but, but again, well, it's, it, it does the exact opposite when I get down to the basics of what I want it to do, mm-hmm. right? I want more damage and lower hit points. I want faster action. This gives you, you know, 90 extra hit points to your beast with a ninth level spell, but only doing nine points of extra damage. Uh, yeah. You know, give, give me the opposite of that. And, yeah, and, that's fair. And I'd be happy. But yeah. Yeah, it, it, I, I agree with you. Like, I would rather see this emphasis be on a sudden burst of, of coolness rather than i mean definitely temps i mean i you know me i i'm not a fan of temps and so that just gets in the way of things but um i'm not so it's not so problematic on a companion but uh but you know really honestly this is the kind of thing i have to play test because i have to get a feel for how that stat block is working because the stat block is not that powerful Mm -hmm. so it's almost like this is a fix to the stat block maybe i don't know like i'd want to play test this i really can't I'd want to see how it feels to have this, you know, armor class 13 plus my proficiency bonus. That's not a lot, you know, hit points 10 plus five times on my druid level. That's decent, but you know, it, I, you know, I don't know how this thing would feel. I'd really have to play with it at a couple of different levels to get a feel for it. So I hope that wizards is doing that and really yeah. getting a feel for it and play and what it's like to then try to juice it with these spell slots. Yeah, but well, the flavor is cool. It, it definitely has a, what I like it, it's a nice relationship between, not only are you summing this thing, but you're working with it a little more. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes classes say, I'm all about my summon thing, but it's almost like an afterthought. Like it's mm-hmm. doing its own thing and you're doing other things, but then you then there isn't that focus relationship. So I do like that part of it. Yep, I agree. And the last subclass is the Rune Crafter Wizard. The Rune Crafter Wizard utilizes the ancient power of runes, which originated in the giant rune casters of old. So at second level, you always have Comprehend Languages prepared and can cast it without a spell slot. It doesn't count against the number of prepared spells that you have. Very very nice. Definitely a spell that comes in handy in a lot of cases. Uh, You can store runes in your spell book, which can have a cosmetic appearance of your choice. They give examples of some that you can take. Uh, We get to the meat of it here with Runic Empowerment. Uh, When casting a spell using a spell slot, so not cantrips, uh, you can choose to apply one of three runes. The life rune, you choose one creature you can see within 30 feet, and they gain temporary hit points equal to five times the spell level. More temporary hit points. (laughs) Uh, Now, this time coming from wizards. Uh, You can do the war rune. You choose one creature you can see within 30 feet, and until the end of your next turn, attack rolls that target that target that creature gain a bonus equal to half of the spell level expended uh, with a minimum of plus one. I assume it's rounded down. Uh, 
So, uh, yeah. It's I spent a fourth level spell, and to get everybody a, has plus two plus to attack two. that creature until the end of next turn. Uh, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wind Rune. Your speed increase, increases by five by feet equal to five times the spell level. Uh, and your movement does not provoke opportunity attacks, and it lasts until the start of your next turn. So you can now. Is this was this an action or any sort of action to do? Any no. Of so I so don't it's think just so. so the one thing that's good is this is happening for free, right? Mm-hmm. So you cast a spell. I cast Fireball. It's a third level spell. I can now choose one of these three runes if I want to use my 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 ability to do this. I can do one of these three round runes for free and it will have that effect, right? So I could just choose a creature, I, I cast Fireball, uh, hey, Sean, your character gets uh, 15 temporary hit points or one of these other effects. And then what happens is I can only do one rune per spell casting mm-hmm. and uh, this feature can be used a number of times equal to my proficiency bonus, which I get back with a long rest. So my proficiency bonus is three, I can do this for three different spells that I do and that's it. But um yeah, it's a. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm 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 of the point where I was like, I want this to be stronger, but I mm-hmm. don't want it to be stronger. Well, I definitely don't <laughs> want it to be temporary hit points, but I, right. I like the concept, right? I'm casting a spell, and then I get this cool thing when I want to activate it. I like that. I don't know that yeah. I like the three things that are given to me here. The wind yeah. is fine, but it's. I mean, you know, you you don't need the movement increase, probably. Right. Some, I guess, you know, sometimes you might. So it's fine. It's fine. The wind is fine. Uh, War rune is unexciting and not worth the spend. And light, I just don't like temps, so life runes yeah. out for me. So, which yep. is probably what everybody would do is do temps. Right. You know, because except it's a big, giant... except everyone has temps from every other thing <laughs> that they have subclass. So it doesn't. I mean, that's what we're running into in the games I've played in the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Is it's like okay, and you get seven temps. Well, I already have ten, or you know, oh well, I only had six, so I'll take your seven. It's yeah. it's getting to be a little bit ridiculous. But mm-hmm. at six level, when you fail a strength, dex, or con saving throw, you can use your reaction and expend one of your runic empowerments to succeed on the saving throw instead. Wow. Okay, cool, powerful, yeah, yeah. Uh, tenth level, when you use your arcane recovery feature from being a wizard. Uh, you can regain the runic empowerment uses equal to half of your intelligent modifier rounded up. So basically, so this is by 10th level, plus two, you're getting two back, yeah. basically. Yeah. What's fascinating about this is that almost everything we've seen recently has ignored short rests, almost pretended mm-hmm. the game doesn't have them. Uh, but Arcane Recovery feeds off of short rests, so, so this does lean into that. Interesting. Yeah, true. Um, at 14th level, your bonus action to target a creature that you can see within 50 feet. The target must make a wisdom saving throw against your spell DC or is marked by an enmity rune. Uh, mm. This is a faint glowing moat of energy. The creature has disadvantage on saving throws against your spells. If the creature, uh, if the creature was invisible, it becomes visible and it cannot become invisible again. And when you first mark it, uh, and as a bonus action on subsequent turns, you can curse it. The next time an ally hits it, the target takes 1d8 force damage and the curse ends. Uh, this rune will last for one minute or until you lose concentration. Does that mean you 
can't concentrate on a spell while you are have this going? It's a good question. My understanding from previous conversations with Jeremy Crawford is yes. So if something says that it works like spell concentration, then it is doing so. Okay. Uh, once is, you use the feature, you can't do it again until you use a long rest, unless you expend a level three or higher spell slot. So you can do it again by expending a third level or higher spell slot. Okay. Um, hmm. Yeah. I I don't... I, I guess you... Right, power-wise, having giving someone disadvantage on their saving throws against your spells, that's huge. Right, mm-hmm. because you, we already have save or suffer spells, and yeah. so this will just make those save or suffer spells even more insufferable. Uh, the the not becoming invisible thing could be you know huge, but this right. is only happening once per long rest. It's not the end of the world, but you know, and it's probably you know it's fourteenth level, so sometimes you're just going to go, ha ha, no, not on my watch. Mm-hmm. You'll never become invisible again. Um, yeah, it's a lot. I don't know. I don't love it. I don't know exactly. I can't put my finger on the exact why of it. It's sort of, again, I think that, you know what I like is is when there are when there are multiple things, but it's like an easy choice for me to make and I'm not making it often. I think when it's, when it's multiple things happening, it becomes a lot to track and it bogs down play. And I'd rather just be like one, choose the thing that this does and be over with it versus all these other things, especially when it's like this marking it as a bonus action. I'm cursing it and taking D eight damage. It's 14th level. Don't let's not track D eight damage. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yes, yeah. so I think that third bullet in particular, just, I don't need the market mm-hmm. yeah. curse it extra damage, right. especially because when the that... curse thing, it's just going to happen once. Like, like why? Right. What's the point of that? Because just deal curse, damage to it right now. Like the just curse when you separate. do that bonus action, it should just yeah. do damage. Done. The curse is separate from the other effects as well. Yes. So when you mark it, it's cursed. You can then recurse it for a minute. Yes. When you first so you mark it, or as a bonus, bonus action, action on subsequent turns. So you can continue yeah. to no. curse it. But if the curse goes away, the disadvantage and the invisibility ban stays. It's yeah, it's it's a little Fourteenth so level. Why are you spending a bonus action for D eight? No. A, a, a lot of this really comes down to you know what kind of game do you want to play, right? Do you mm-hmm. want to play a game where tracking all of this stuff is is the game for you, because mm-hmm. it takes up so much attention, and if so, great, right? This is wonderful, and and you you love keeping track of every extra D eight that you can damn you know use for damage. Um, and I have a thought on that, which is that that's cool. If you make it really clear what the subclass is or what the class is. So like in general, I think a warlock is a more complex class. And if you look at the player's handbook for just a bit, you realize, okay, I'm getting into something. Like this is not a fighter. This is not even a rogue. This is another level of I've got lots of options and lots of choices to make as to how I build my character. And so you got to be in for that. Now, what the funny thing is a lot of times people come up with it. I just want this cool concept of having a pact. Well, you, you got to take all this complexity with it. And that's where I'd want that if we're going to create a tactical subclass, that it's clear that that's what this is and it's for those players to do it, but it should not hurt the rest of the play at the table, right? Yeah. And and what I find often, like if I look at the Tasha's subclasses, I find that 
there will just be a very tactical thing mixed into a subclass without regards for overall what the strategy of that is. And, and I would like to see subclasses be kind of a level of complexity consistently across their build yeah. so that it's creating that experience for that kind of player and, and it's telegraphed and obvious and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to dig in now because mm -hmm. th then what you do for the simpler kind of classes is you simply have to bump up the damage that they do to make up for it. But the problem with them doing that is the people that would normally sort of be intricate power gamey stuff over here realize, well, I can do just as much damage by just adding a couple of feats to this really powerful thing here. So they don't even then bother because the optimal choice isn't all of these fidgety things. It's the extra damage that the barbarian can do uh, by taking this feat and, and this magic item. So it's, it, sometimes it becomes a self-defeating uh, process yeah, of doing that. Yeah, it can, but, but you also don't want it to be that the finicky complex thing is more powerful because then you're encouraging this level of mastery that, that can right. take away from what the game should be. Right. Like, like exactly. in some ways th that's where like the, the, um, you know, the champion fighter subclass I think is done fairly well compared to the other options in the player's handbook in that it, it you know, it's powerful and it's straightforward, um, but it's not, it's not too powerful or too unpowerful to, to make other choices obviously better or worse, right? It, I, to me, that, that's a really sweet balance that they achieved with that, with making the default one work just fine and the yeah. other ones work fine next to it. And I like that. Yeah. So we also have, we, did we, yes, we did all Feeds. of the, we did all of the subclasses, oh, so... Oh, yeah, you know, I was just going to say that... Um, so, yeah, the wizard, I find it to be not great. Like, to me, this doesn't super do what I want out of a rune caster. And, and, and I think even, the like, the 5e has a rune knight fighter subclass. I, I like what that does with its runes better to be evocative of the concept. Um, I like what they're trying to do here, but I would like to see another take on it personally. Yep. So let's dig into the feats. We have 10 new feats, one of which is dependent on another feat. So we are seeing a repeat of the feat tree approach that we saw with the Dragonlance on Earth Arcana. Uh, mm -hmm. So let's talk about the non-feat tree stuff first. Uh, we have Elemental Touched as a feat. You were exposed to the primordial magic of the Elemental Planes. You learn either Druidcraft or Thaumaturgy. Uh, cantrip. Well, that sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, when you finish a long rest, you choose an element. With a bonus action, you can do the associated effect. If you choose the air element, you can get a fly speed equal to your walking speed until the end of your turn. If you are still aloft, you fall at the end of your turn. We get the earth element, which is the ground within 30 feet of you becoming difficult terrain for one minute or until you use this effect again. Uh, you could ignore that difficult terrain, although allies, it seems, still have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. You can choose the fire element where a cloud of ash and smoke surrounds you so that you don't provoke opportunity attacks. Um, is that just for movement or is that for any type of opportunity attack? I ask as I scroll through the feats. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. Your movement doesn't provoke opportunity attacks. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, 
and then for water, there is a surge of water that you can shoot at a creature within 15 feet of you that you can see. It needs to make a strength save or uh, is gets pushed away 10 feet. Yeah, and you can do that a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. Um, yeah, okay, I guess. I don't know that a lot of people are going to go with this, but... Yeah, I... I guess. I mean, if it was the first part of a feet tree, uh, I would say <laughs> people might take it, but it's not. So mm-hmm. who knows? Um, you want to take the next one? Sure. So yeah, most of these have level prerequisites. So Ember of the Fire Giant, eighth level you've got to be to take this, um, which is a little bit interesting in that, you know, what I'm saying is like, I have the Fire Giant's essence in me somehow but I only discovered it at eighth level. (laughs) Uh, I'm suddenly resistant to fire damage. And when taking the attack action, I can replace one of my attacks with a magical burst of flame. Each creature of my choice within 15 feet that I can see makes a deck save. Uh, Failure is 2d6 plus my proficiency bonus of fire damage and blinded Mm -hmm. until the start of my next turn. Success is half damage and not blind. That is really strong. Uh, I can do this proficiency bonus times. That is super strong uh, with that blind attached uh, and, and being an AOE within 15 feet of me. And, and hey, if I were huge, that would be even more interesting. Yeah. Um, so th- this is the, the main problem here is just like, how do you coordinate with your allies to sort of pull this off? Mm-hmm. But if you can, I mean, you can just blind a bunch of things and you can doing it proficiency most times is actually a fair amount for something like this. So this, this seems to me a little strong. Right. Uh, you could do it time after time after time within the same combat even. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, next is Fury of the Frost Giant, which is a prerequisite of fourth level resistant to cold damage. And when a creature hits you with an attack roll, you can use your reaction to frighten them <laughs> if they fail a wisdom saving throw. And same thing as before, it can be done a proficiency bonus number of times, refreshing on a long rest. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, Guile of the Cloud Giant must be eighth level. You get proficiency in either deception or persuasion, and the proficiency bonus is doubled for the skill. You can cast Blur, the spell, without a spell slot or material components, and it does not require concentration. That is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do it again after a long rest, so it's just once per long rest. Uh, you can also have her use your spell slots to cast it as a normal blur spell, so you now know it. But that that uh, not requiring concentration is is the key there. Um, I think I kind of like this. Um, it is powerful, but doing it once I'm okay with. But again, we were told that feats in 5th edition are a set of things that kind of capture a concept. And this is like, a, you know, I don't know, I guess it's technically a set because you get this dis- deception or persuasion, but it feels to me like it's, I'm taking it so I can cast blur once a day without concentration. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's a little, I, I don't know. I, 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 all of fifth edition feats, it's not like I have an intense hatred for them. They're, they're, you know, like I, it's hard question as to how you design them. Um, but I feel like, I want something else, not that I know what I want. And, and this just right. reminds me of that, that I, I wish feats were a consistent concept in the game. I feel like they're inconsistent. I never know what I, whether I want them to be weaker or stronger, but they're sort of neither here nor there for me. Yeah. Uh, speaking of neither here nor there, Keenness of the Stone Giant. Uh, fourth level prerequisite gives you dark vision up to 60 feet or extended by 30 feet if you already have dark vision. You learn Detect Thoughts, 
and one first level spell of your choice from abjuration or divination. And you can cast these without a spell slot once until you take a long rest. And you can also use it as uh, a spell that you know with your regular spell slots. So this so, can and, plan will be yeah. fun, Sean, but we know what the optimizers are going to do with it. Yep, yep. To oh, shield or armor right. of Agathis. Right. That you now, because, you know, there are certain multi-classes that you take because you want to get one of those spells. Mm -hmm. And now you can choose an even different spellcasting class because you want to do that kind of thing, like Paladin of Smite, but then get this to use up as well. Or ah, It's interesting. We'll see what the theory crafters do with this if it goes through. Yeah, this is, is, for me, this is what you were talking about with the last feat, right? Mm -hmm. It's not... Oh, this is a cool concept. It's not, oh, I have an ability, so I'm going to take a feat that modifies how that ability is used. This is, yeah, yeah, I want to cast this first level spell, and ooh, I don't have to take a, I don't have to waste a dip into this other multi class to get this. I can just take it now. And And, and none of that is the keenness of the stone giant, which is what the concept is supposed to be, right? It's, I I drop shield all the time to abuse my already high armor class. Right. That's your keenness of the stone giant. And I'd rather it be a, a unique thing and not a fuel for a spell because it just creates yep. issues. Yep, yep. We'll see it again. Stay tuned. Oh, yeah. Outsized might, uh, you gain proficiency in either athletics or acrobatics, and you count as one size larger for carrying capacity and your push-drag-lift uh, scores, and you have advantage on saves to be moved or knocked prone. Hmm. The- Okay. okay. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. <laughs> I, I don't think carrying capacity comes up a lot no, in most no. games. Uh so yeah, it's a it's a feat where you get stuff. Yeah. I mean it's almost as good as sharpshooter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll go with that. Uh Rune Carver Apprentice. Next feat. When you finish a long rest, you mark a non-magical weapon, armor, clothing, or other object with a rune. And this is a weird feat where it requires this use of this object and it really kind of doesn't matter. But I'm um, choosing an object. Uh you temporarily learn one first level spell based on this rune found on a table. You know the spell until you finish a long rest. You can cast a spell once while wearing or carrying the rune marked object without a spell slot uh, expenditure or a material component. And you can also cast it with your spell slots. So there are lots of choices, like Bless or Burning Hands, Armor of Agathis again, Shield is there, Guiding Bolt, Cure Wounds. There's some interesting options. But, you know, this sort of Shield, Armor of Agathis type choice is is the kind of obvious way to go for for most power gamers. And, you know, as much as there's there's theoretical flavor here, I mean, it can be anything. It can be your T-shirt, your underwear. It doesn't matter. So I don't know that... I don't know why they bothered with these sort of rules about it being a particular object. Um, I don't know that this is going to feel like rune cover apprentice. It's just going to be a reason why this person can spit out the spell over and over again. Yeah. So at first level, I took uh rune cover apprentice and at fourth level, uh, <laughs> I took keenness of the stone giant. So now I can cast shield twice between uh-huh. long rests and uh, it's, it's a thing. But Rune Carver Apprentice is now a prerequisite for the next uh, feat, which is Rune Carver Adept, which you can take at fourth level if you have Rune Carver Apprentice. Uh, you can now mark a number of objects up to your proficiency bonus with a rune, one per object and a different rune on each object. Uh, so once you get to, you know, 
having a plus four to your proficiency bonus, you can mark four objects with different objects with different runes. Well, the objects, as we said, don't matter. Now, each rune has to be different, but you can, you know, you can take the shield with one and the armor of Agathis with another. And, you know, it it gets interesting uh, Mm -hmm. really quickly. Yes, it does. Don't want to see it at my table. Thank you, players. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so eighth level soul of the storm giant is a uh, feat you as a bonus action surround yourself in magical wind and lightning extends 10 feet from you and it lasts one minute attacks against you have disadvantage and when a creature starts its turn in the aura you can force its speed to be halved until the start of its next turn uh this is once per long rest the, the speed thing is sort of interesting because it's only 10 feet. So it literally only matters if they needed that extra five feet to sort of reach you or get past you or something. You know, it's probably just one square of moving your impacting. So it's really a corner case when it's going to matter about that half speed. I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I would change that up in some way. Um, the disadvantage against you is, is a big deal because theoretically for a minute, you know, everything is attacking you at disadvantage and that includes at range. It doesn't have to be in the R, I don't think. Um, one thing that's cool, I like this whole cast divination as a ritual without material components once per long rest. So it's cool. If, if you want your feats to do these kinds of things, I, I think I kind of like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know that I want my feats to do these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And Because um, I last... feel like powers rather than yeah, exactly. things that define me. Yep. The last one is the Vigor of the Hill Giant, prerequisite of fourth level. When an effect would move you at least five feet or knock you prone, you can use your reaction to prevent it totally. Uh, when you're subjected to a spell that restores your hit points, you regain uh, additional hit points equal to your con modifier. You can do this a number of times equal to three times your proficiency bonus, regaining all uses with a long rest. So, uh, you know, when your proficiency bonus is plus three, nine times when you get your spe- uh, hit points restored with a spell, you can add your con modifier to that. Almost not worth tracking how many times you use it because it's so many. But um, yeah, I guess well, if you're yeah. really getting beat up or something, then cure in, it off. And in, in, it depends on how you play, right? If you're if you're having three battles and then a long rest every time you adventure, it's not worth tracking for the most part. Uh, but I'm if it's a curious, long, would Goodberry yeah. trigger it? Is that a spell restoring my hit points when I eat a berry? That's a that is a question that has plagued uh, mankind for oh, oh nine years now. Um, yeah. So yes, I, so, I you know, theory. Sean, uh, I, I love the game, so everything's good. Please, nobody mm-hmm. listening to this misunderstand me. I love fifth edition. I love playing the game, but as we near five point five. I'm concerned that this is what I'm seeing around feet and not because it's bad. Like this is all fun and you can have fun with these. There's, there's no lack of fun potential here, but I think that fifth edition, in my impression, fifth edition has struggled to figure out what a feat should or should not be and what it should look like. And Mm -hmm. when we hear that description, the player's handbook of what it is, I don't feel like these things move the ball forward in terms of, you know, advance the design significantly. And I kind of wish they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it. I think we talked about this maybe last week, which is how do you sell more books as a an edition gets into its first decade of mm. of play? Is you make more rules, and it, is the actual game benefiting from those rules? I don't yeah. know. 
for some people, I'm sure it is. I'm sure some people are very excited to try out these things uh, mm-hmm. at their table. Oh, yeah, and, I have friends who love this stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, as, as do I. And, and then I think how to explain these stuff. feats to a new or casual player. Like when I ran, you know, a bunch of middle schoolers through Ack Inc., I think they would forget 90% of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, I don't know. That they, they'd certainly pick it because it would sound cool. But then they would forget these things completely because it just requires a level of sort of tracking and management that they are not going to do. Yeah. I mean, part part of me in my game design life cycle is to the point where I want to merge narrative and rules in a way that as tightly as possible makes the story the rules and the rules the story. Hmm. And everything that we see here does add a can add to the story but doesn't necessarily add to the the narrative it it pulls the narrative further and further away from the Mm -hmm. rules themselves it's more bookkeeping than it is storytelling Mm -hmm. and their games are perfect for certain people that that do that and so great for that it's just not where my design brain is right now uh, so it's hard to get excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We uh, we just had an episode without even knowing we had an episode. <laughs> Where's so, the mode runs? Hey, yeah. can I just add, uh, sure. should, do you want to cover these last two news bits or? Sure. Just Go the, for it. Because these I, are time, kind of yeah. time related for folks who want to see it. So um, kind of two aspects to this. One is that the... Um, Cleveland Browns played D&D for charity mm-hmm. recently, uh, just last week. Uh, it was part of the Red Nose Day uh, games that are events, charity events they've been doing, which we also saw um, some other events going on. But this is this was streamed live from a board game cafe in Cleveland, which I thought was kind of cool. And so NFL players Miles Garrett, Wyatt Teller, and Johnny Stanton, who played D&D, they played D&D uh, with uh, Abria Yengar and comedian Ify Mwadiwe. And the DM was Brandon Tharp. So that took place on May 26th. And you can see the link in the show notes uh, for more information. And I think you can find that online to watch. Um, and then D&D is organizing a Stranger Things game. They actually already filmed it with uh, DMing was B. Dave Walters and several of the cast members. That is going to be visible Thursday, June the 9th at 9 a.m. Pacific. It's not clear where exactly they're sharing it. It was advertised through the Netflix Geeked Twitter account. So there's a link in the show notes there, and one presumes that they're going to tell us somehow how to get to that. And the last, last bit I want to say here uh, is just around a quick minis news. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't stop me from sharing the minis news. I, I wouldn't even try. <laughs> I mean, you did try. I mean, it was it was valiant. Um so Widsgoods normally sells things in um, collectible minis come in a brick of eight boxes. And each box had four minis, one of them which might be large or huge. And they have changed that up this time, my friend. Starting with the Fizzband set, when they sell this brick of eight boxes, which normally get divvied up at your store right, and sold individually at your local Lake gaming store, now it's six of what they used to do, which are now called huge boosters, and two that are super boosters. And what this does is the the super booster now just has one huge mini. 
presumably, hopefully, a cooler mini than how you might get a huge before, but also get three other minis. Now you just get this one huge. So I hope it's a really cool huge, because why did I lose out on minis? And what that means is the the brick of minis, the set of eight boxes now has 26 figures, whereas it used to be 32. So you're, you're losing a bit. Uh, and the case of minis now contains four times, you know, four bricks still, and that brings it to 104 figures total. So it's fewer minis than before. And there used to be sets where every box had a huge mini. So I don't know that, you know, it, it feels like we're losing out here. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how this plays and how it goes. And what's interesting is that the things are priced by a brick, as I understand it. But I'm seeing retailers, because they buy this brick and divide it up, they charge more for the big box, the, the super booster, than they do for the other ones. We're seeing two prices online. So it'll, it'll, it's all very interesting change. And I'm curious how this plays out. All right. With our mini uh, session complete, that ends our podcast. Next time, we will, no doubt, finish up talking about the great Modron March. But for now, I want to thank everyone for listening to our take on the news. Uh, our, if you are a patron of the show, thank you so much. You can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Teos, what are you doing on social media right now, and where can we find it? Oh, man. Uh, I have the Success in RPGs show, which uh, you can find on my YouTube channel. And uh, links to that are found at alphastream.org, my website where I blog. You can also find it on Twitter at alphastream. Where do we find you, Sean? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. If you want to talk to both of us and talk to the show itself, there are many ways you can do that. You can go to forums.misdirectedmark.com. You can talk to the podcast Twitter feed at Mastering D&D. Uh, you can leave comments on our YouTube channel. Uh, or you can go to our main website at misdirectedmark.com and comment uh, on a show individually. And we've had people coming in through all those channels. So thank you so much. And if there's anything you didn't like about the show, just send the message uh, via Twitter to at Sly Flourish. There you go. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, now that uh, we know everything there is to know about giants and runes and we've sent angry people to Mike Shea, what are we going to do now? I think we got to toss dwarves left and right. But not damage them. It's uh it's it's refreshing. It's, it's fair.